Hey mamas, and welcome to the Entering Motherhood podcast. This is your one-stop, go-to place for getting you from feeling drained, exhausted, and unfulfilled in motherhood to feeling more energized, organized, and accomplished. That's the vision I continue to navigate towards, and that's the vision we are sharing with you, focusing on holistic alternatives and restructuring your mind, body, and soul from the inside out. I'm your host, Sarah Marie Bilger, a wife, mom of two, mechanical engineer, VBAC mom, and doula, serving mamas through pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. If you're here for this, if you're as pumped up as I am and searching for that fire that you know is deep inside of you, then let's go. Let's uncover what it truly means to enter motherhood. You are a rock star. I believe in you. Let's doula this. Let's crank it up a notch and let's kick it into high gear together. Hey mamas, how are you? We are wrapping up Cesarean Awareness Month and leaving you with this story from Kathy Garrett. She also hosts a podcast herself called Birth Trauma Stories. I was on season two, episode four, sharing my story, but here she shares her experience, what that was like, and how she is navigating through motherhood now and what she is doing to advocate for women in similar situations and experiences that she has gone through and sharing these stories and really expressing the trauma that can occur around birth. So I just want to open up this episode for you if you are willing and ready to hear her story and listen to this experience. And if you want to hear more, then head on over to her podcast because it is truly amazing. She is doing amazing work and I am so excited to share this individual with you and to share this episode. So stick around, listen in, and here we go. Hello, and welcome to Entering Motherhood. Glad to have you here today and getting um, this conversation started. So why don't you start by introducing yourself? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I am equally as excited. Uh, My name is Kathy Garrett. I am an AFE survivor and stroke survivor and postpartum endometritis survivor. Um, I had two pretty, pretty complicated deliveries. Um, and yeah, it's been a long road, but again, I'm so thankful to be here today. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to get this conversation started, you know, like having it be cesarean awareness month and really diving into, you know, all the different circumstances Mm -hmm. that come with that and also trauma related to it. I think it's it's so important to be sharing our stories and talking about where we have come from, from our birth experiences and why we're advocating to spread that knowledge and share it with others so that they can hear our stories. So I would love for you to, you know, you just threw a lot at us. How about kind of yes. like break down what each of those things are? 
And then also just dive into a little bit of your story and, and how everything happened. So with my first, I had, uh, I did not go into labor naturally. I had failure to progress, uh, through a long three day induction, but then, um, after the, uh, C-section, I went home, everything was okay. And well, that's not entirely true. I remember that day I left the hospital, I was not feeling great. And the nurses just kind of chalked it up to, you know, those early days of postpartum. And then I was home, I believe for about two or three days and went back to the emergency room and I had a uterine infection or a postpartum infection. So then I was group B positive. So we think that that's what caused the infection postpartum, but you know, we'll never actually know. And so that second time I had to be in the hospital for three days and that was hard coming home from that was hard. I remember walking into house and being nervous that I was going to have to go back again. And, you know, were we finally going to be able to like settle in as a family? Thankfully I did not. And we, everything was fine from there on out. And then with my second, I did go into labor naturally and, um, I was in labor for about 21, 22 hours. And my head, my husband said, I was taking a nap, had gotten the epidural resting. Then I very suddenly woke up and said, my heart is racing. And a very long, complicated story short is I had the amniotic fluid embolism. And that's when amniotic fluid or something from the baby or wound, either a hair cell, nail cell, it can even be meconium gets into the mother's bloodstream, which Amniotic fluid does transfer to the mother. They used to think that that was not the case, but more research, more recent research is showing it is. Uh, But for whatever reason, the mom has an anaphylactic-like reaction or anaphylactoid-like reaction to that cell, so to speak. And your body basically just shuts down. Uh, You go into cardiac arrest, pulmonary arrest, CPR is required, and then the second phase is called disassemiated intervascular coagulation or DIC for short. And that's when your blood is clotting and bleeding profusely. And then you go into organ failure. Typically, apparently your kidneys and liver are first. And so I was in a coma for nine days. And over the course of those nine days, I had six surgeries was on ECMO, which is the highest level of life support. And uh, sometime during that, those nine days, I had a stroke as well. And do you remember any of this? No. So my my older daughter's birthday is August 23rd. My second daughter's birthday is September 19th. And my last vivid memory was August 23rd. It was her was celebrating my then two-year-old's birthday. And yeah, so I, I remember literally nothing for pretty much a month because I woke up on September 28th and, uh, yeah, it's a very surreal feeling, uh, as more time has gone on, you know, I've tried to sit and remember things and I just, I just don't. And, um, so yeah, that's, so you can't even remember going into labor naturally, which is sad. No, no, I don't, which is really sad for me. I feel like 
it's really hard because I wanted that so badly. And I know I took steps to achieve that, like all of the kind of quote unquote old, old wives tales. And I don't remember it at all. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's like, I mean, obviously like you did not like plan for this. You were like prepping for, you know, different situation. And, um, it's something that's, you know, out of your control. You can't control. Like, did you find out what it was? Like what part of your baby had gotten into the fluid or? No. So typically what happens is that, that it's called an embolus that goes to your lungs. And then, um, in my situation, when my left lung collapsed, it literally pushed my heart out of the way. So they could see the clot. But then um, when they went to do, so I had the sternotomy where they open your chest. And when they got in there, they realized that that clot was still in my lung and not my heart. But since my lung had pushed the, my heart completely out of the way, that's why they thought that on imaging. But apparently... I don't think my understanding is sometimes like the embolus just goes in there, wreaks havoc, and then your body just absorbs it. And my non-medical layperson hypothesis is that that's why you're, I wonder if that's why your body goes into DIC, that bleeding disorder, because it's just trying to get rid of that, that embolus. Yeah. I mean, like I am definitely not like even remotely familiar with it. Um, Mm -hmm. so I can't speak on that, but I can, I mean, like what, what else have you found out now? Like moving forward, like being, you know, past the point that you have found, I guess, like the most shocking or, or like knowledge on this, like it's, it's not something, it seems like it could be like avoid it. Correct. You really cannot avoid it, unfortunately. I think the most shocking thing I've ever found out is how rare it is. You know, and recently somebody was posting about um, another postpartum condition. I can't remember what it was. And they said it's very rare, one in 2000, which is still very rare. But with an AFE, it happens in one in 40,000 pregnancies. Okay. And so I think... I almost don't like it when people are like, oh, that's very rare. And I'm like, I know, I I definitely did not want to pick that lottery ticket. I would have much rather have a different lottery ticket, so to speak. But, you know, I think, I think now it's important. The AFE Foundation is amazing. They're now doing research, trying to find out why this happens. You know, and before we started recording, you were talking about how postpartum depression just became a diagnosis in the 90s. AFE has been around since the first diagnosed case was in 1902. But it's been in the last 15 years that the AFE Foundation started. And it was this a fellow mom who had an AFE and was like, I have no idea what happened. And then started this foundation. Wow. Yeah, I think it's wild that, you know, it's it's one of those things like, okay, yeah, we know this happens, but like we're not dedicating the time and the research and the funding needed to really dive deeper and get more information on these things. And I guess it's like, oh, it's one in 40,000, like, you know, like it's not, 
It's not a priority until somebody speaks up and says, this is a priority. We do need to, you know, find Mm -hmm. out more information about this. So I think, you know, again, to the point, like it's so important to be having these conversations and to be speaking about it, because I think if we can't put a name to it, if we can't, you know, put a priority around it, if we can't have the why behind like, why this research needs to be done, it just, Mm -hmm. it will sit there and it won't get done. So, you know, like it's, it's interesting to, you know, know that there's this dedication being put into it, but like to hear that it's been around for over, like, I mean, they've been diagnosed like over a hundred years and then not only until 15 years ago, has it been something that's had more attention put on it? And I agree. And I know I've talked with fellow AFE sisters who, you know, that's kind of the frustrating part in this is that now we are, you know, being more vocal about it, which is great. And a lot of that has to do with social media. However, like in the maternal health world, AFE is a lower priority. My understanding is AFE is a lower priority because it's so rare. But Again, my understanding is is it's the number one cause of maternal death. And it it's just mind-boggling to know that this condition is out there and it's not getting the attention because it's so rare. Yeah. And I I speak for myself and probably many of my if not all of my other AFE sisters when we say, what happened to me? So to me, it's really important that we find out why this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's huge. I think, you know, it's one of those things, like if I didn't know you, I feel like I wouldn't know what it was. Like, like as much as I dive into this motherhood realm and like all things like pregnancy, Mm -hmm. birth, postpartum, it's still like, I mean, it's like, I'm sure you're exposed to so much more because you're searching for that, but that's not something that like the common person would know. And I would also say, I think before I had my daughter, I didn't even know like what a placenta was or that like they were in a sack or like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's all these things that like, I think need to be more talked about so that when we come into motherhood, we're more aware of our body and what things can happen and what things are happening and, Mm -hmm. and everything that comes with that. So, you know, I think it's amazing that you're like finding other people and talking about it and really, um, amplifying that portion of your story. Yeah. I, and I, I agree with you that, I mean, we're, we're better together. One of my favorite hashtags is we're in this together, whether, that's motherhood or pregnancy or uh, postpartum mood disorder or recovering from delivery, whether that's vaginal or cesarean. I think it's so important to know we're stronger in numbers and our voices need to be heard. And it's just so important to know we need to find a diagnosis for this. And even recently I was talking with a friend. I agree with you that as I had my children, I learned more. So this this friend does not have children. And so she hasn't gone through that, unfortunately. But, you know, I mentioned preeclampsia and she goes, oh yeah, that's the one with the high blood pressure. Right. And I said, yes. 
So for her to not even have children and know what that is, imagine what it was like for me to have already had at least one child and then hear about this condition that not only is extremely rare, but they have no idea why it happens. And it's literally like everything's fine until it's not. Mm -hmm. It's utterly shocking and mind-blowing. Yeah. So you said you had six surgeries while you were in a coma Correct. for nine days. What were all the surgeries? And um, yeah, I guess this, we'll start there. Like what were those surgeries? Like what was going on? So the first was that that sternotomy where they opened my chest. I had um, a hemonomothorax, which is just blood and uh, or just I say just, but it's blood and uh, it's blood and fluid around your heart and lungs, and so they had to decompress that. Then I had the hysterectomy because of all of the bleeding. Then I had ECMO, uh, which is that life support machine, and a. At first, I believe they put me, there's two different kinds, one for your lungs, one for your heart. I believe I was put on lungs first and then they just couldn't stabilize my blood pressure because I was internally bleeding still because of the DIC. And then they put me on the the heart ECMO. And then um, I think two days later, I had basically a clean out of my chest. They went in, so they left my chest open and they basically just patch it and then they clean out your chest of the blood and the clots and things. And then the last surgery was um, actually a two-part surgery where they they were removing me from ECMO, which was super exciting. But then during that surgery, they found out I had a massive clot in my abdomen and it was blocking flow to my kidneys and my legs. So I had to have uh, vascular surgery for them to put in stents and I do still have damage to my right leg and my right kidney. And it's kind of hard to know what, how do I say this? It's kind of hard to know what caused what, so to speak, because the stroke also affected my right side. So like, at least for the kidney, we know like that was because of the clot, but like the damage in my leg, it's hard to know because I had paralysis in my legs. And that was actually another surgery they were talking about was they wanted to decompress the pressure in my spinal column because they think that that was what was causing paralysis. But I also had a brain bleed. And so the increased pressure in my spinal column was holding off the brain bleed. And so I love the way my husband rationalized it. He was like, well, paralysis is better than brain death. So that's kind of how he rationalized it. And then at one point also they were talking about amputating my legs because of um, because they were not functioning. And I also had compartment syndrome. I also had a clot in my right hand. So I have a little scar on my right hand where they had to go in and and take and take the clot out. Is my I mean, when I woke up, like I couldn't open my fingers. They were so swollen. Like my fingers were just or I couldn't close my fingers because they were so okay. small they were just like sa- sausages basically because of all the over- the fluid overload because my kidneys were shutting down. It's also on dialysis. So yeah, there were, there was a lot going on. So you had a cesarean for your first and you were Correct. attempting and going for a VBAC Correct. when this happened. So 
what was that moment like when you woke up? Extremely confusing. So when you're coming out of a coma, it tends to take a couple of days for all the drugs to get out of your system. Although my husband told me at one point I was not on drugs. My body just basically put itself into a coma because of the brain injury. And um, my first, so I, I have like a couple of memories that kind of feel like a dream, so to speak. But I like the day that I count as my survival anniversary and the day that I woke up is, like I said, September 28th. And I remember waking up and my husband coming in and telling me what happened. And then my OB coming in and I'm just sitting there. I'm still intubated. So I can't talk, can't ask questions. And I have these cuffs on my elbows because I, like anybody, I tried to pull my tube out. And I think it was just a lot to take in. And at first, they gave me the the bare minimum. You had an AFE. You had the hysterectomy. I don't think they even told me about the stroke or anything else. I think it was just those two things. And then I think my husband may have said to me, the baby's okay. And at that point, I didn't even remember being pregnant. You can imagine how confusing that was to be told you had a baby Um, The nurses had decorated my room with pictures, letters from our our church family and drawings from all the kids at church. And they brought me a picture to see her. And I just I was just so confused. And I wish I could say in that moment I was immensely grateful. It was just amazing that, you know, there was this little we call them burritos, baby burritos who endured so much trauma because she was still inside me when all this happened. She endured so much trauma and there she is just sleeping contently in her little bassinet. Like mind boggling. I wish I could say I was grateful, but I wasn't. It was just an immense amount of information to take in. And I don't know if the confusion was because of like ICU delirium. Because at that point I hadn't been outside in two weeks. I don't know if it was because of the medications that I was on or if it was because of the stroke. You know, it's really hard, again, to pinpoint what caused what, but probably until I was extubated. I just remember just trying to get from one minute to the next to the next and trying to just make it through the day. It's so, it, ICU is so hard. It's so hard. And I think our society downplays how hard it can be. Yeah. And this is something that we had talked about on your podcast, the the partner trauma that's involved too. You know, he's saying, you know, the baby's okay. And, you know, he had been going through all of this. Like he's living this moment from an outside perspective, watching you go through all of this. You know, like I'm sure he has his own story to tell about this experience. First, like when did baby come, you know, touching on, I guess your husband has talked a lot of this through with you. Yeah. So with a maternal code, they actually have to get the baby out in six minutes because the baby's not getting blood flow or oxygen. And actually when they're doing CPR on a pregnant woman, they move the belly to one side to try and get that weight off of your abdominal aorta. And getting the baby out actually, again, relieves that pressure and it helps with maternal CPR. 
And so from the point that a code is called, so if I remember correctly, I coded and then my nurse started CPR and they call the support team, which is the NICU and the L&D team. And then I think after like three minutes, I wasn't responding to CPR and that's when they called the code. And so from the point of that code is when they have to get the baby out. And, um, and yeah, so her kind of her side of the story was, um, she was limp when she was born. I, they didn't, I read my medical records. So that's the only reason I know that, but obviously they don't give any sort of like, was she blue, gray, et cetera. But, um, so they get her out and unfortunately the surgeon had cut, had sliced her shoulder when, uh, getting her, but, um, she did have to be intubated. She was intubated for probably about an hour and then on oxygen, I think for two days and then went home at four days. Like it was very remarkable how fast she recovered. And then she came back into the hospital with you. So she was not obviously not allowed in the ICU, but my cardiac team, when I went to like, I think it's called a PACU, they arranged for her to come. And even the child life team helped us because I caught a cold when I was in the hospital. And obviously I didn't know this at the time, but colds can be extremely dangerous for newborns. And so they brought her in an incubator. So that first time I wasn't able to hold her, but it was still even just amazing to see her because when I was in the ICU, actually, I take that back. I think when I was in the ICU, my husband, I can't remember if I was still in ICU or had been transferred to the cardiac floor. He kept asking, do you want to see the baby? And I was like, no, no, no. And I don't know if it was like, again, I was just trying to make it through the day. I didn't want to see, I didn't want her to see me intubated. I, I don't, I can't pinpoint what my thought there was, but so she was born September 19th and October 4th was the day that I finally got to like lay my own eyes on her. Actually, I have another memory. They, they did bring her into the ICU in an incubator to meet me, but I was still in a coma. So I I have no memory of that. And then of course, like that was another cesarean, which was also a hysterectomy. So I guess what was that news like, you know, coming out of a a coma and hearing that side of it as well? The hysterectomy was hard. At first it wasn't, it probably took, well, and two, like I had several rehospitalizations that first year. So a lot, again, a lot of that was just survival, but it took maybe about nine months or a year for me to like really mourn my hysterectomy. And I had a really amazing therapist at the time who, you know, just validated all of my feelings. And um, I'm so thankful you brought that up because even yesterday I was at the doctor and the doctor asked about my menstrual cycles. And I said, oh, well, I had a hysterectomy. And she was like, oh, yeah, I did read that. And at first I was like a little frustrated and like, I really wish doctors would be a little bit more sensitive to that. But then I got home and I was like, maybe I'm overreacting a little bit. But now talking with you, I'm like, no, I'm not. Absolutely not. I'm not overreacting because it's a hard thing to go through to lose your fertility when you're in your 30s, when you're mm-hmm. in your prime, so to speak. And 
yeah, the hysterectomy was hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that is, you know, like when we talk about like infertility and stuff, it's like you were able to have children and then that was almost, well, it was like taken away from you. Like, I mean, yes, to save your life, to help, like, you know, in that sense, but it's still something that like you don't prepare yourself for. And then now you're um, aware of in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it it does take a while. Like, I mean, obviously you're caring for a newborn, you have like another child, like you're, you're kind of like going through that, like survival state as it is, but then like coming to a point of like, you know, I can't have children and, Mm -hmm. you know, these, these are my children. I know that's something else that like we had talked about, um, before, like on your podcast, just kind of like going through that, like, those moments of like, you know, strangers comments kind of situation. Um, Like, oh, your babies are so cute. Like, you know, are you having any more? And it's not something like I say this like multiple times with a lot of our stories, a lot of like, you know, birth trauma and things like that. It's not written across our forehead. Like you can't visibly see our cesarean scars. Like you can't know unless you ask or know our story that these things have happened to us. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard to, you know, even if it is like one in 40,000 people that are having these situations happen, like it's hard to like, not take it personal when somebody is, you know, asking you a personal question. It's like, no, I, I can't have any kids. Like I, like, you know, um, and it's, it's not a choice that you made. You didn't say like, oh, like, yeah, this is my last cesarean. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, let's have a hysterectomy or, or tie your tubes or anything of of that sort. It's, it's something that you didn't choose. And I think, um, that comes with like cesareans also like, you know, you hear like, oh yeah, I had a cesarean and people, I think sometimes assume like you chose that route, which is, which is hard to, you know, take and handle. So like, what do you kind of have to say about like people's outside perspective of your situation and how you personally kind of navigate that? That's a great question. That's really hard. I think there are times when I'm like, okay, you're insensitive enough to ask the question of when are you having another child? So I'm going to tell you honestly, I almost wish, especially in the medical field, because the lay person, like, granted, we should all be a little bit more sensitive and not offending people and acknowledging their hurts and their pains. But I wish medical professionals would go through trauma training. And, you know, because like you said, an innocent comment of having the cesarean decided for you, so to speak, because even with my first, it was, we didn't really have a choice. It was, it's been three days. The baby's now having these cells. This is what is important. And granted, again, like that caveat, that caveat with the hysterectomy, it saved my life. And that caveat with my first, it saved her life. Like hundred times over, I would do the same thing over again, but that doesn't take away the grief and the hurt of feeling like my body failed me or I didn't get what I wanted or provider trauma or insert X, Y, or Z. And I think 
too often people are so insensitive to the fact of like these traumas are hard and and, that, and granted everyone's different I have a sibling who is not she tells me all the time I don't get you because you're emotional and that and I I take that as a joke <laughs> like that's very much I wouldn't necessarily take that a joke from as a joke from everyone but I know her well enough to know that's the way she processes things and it's interesting if she were put in my shoes, she probably would not. Actually, she's very similar to my husband. So I know like my husband is just like, this is our life. We're doing this. We're moving forward. You know, we're taking the good days and the bad days and we're working through them, so to speak. Whereas on a bad day, I'm like, I feel like my head is spinning. And that's just the difference between he and I or the sibling and I, so to speak. And, but I think too, like, it's okay if you're not that emotional person, so to speak, to sit with them and say, hey, what is what what do you need today? How can I help you today? I think that's yeah. I think and just- I mean, mind you though, too, like that could be a trauma response that they're having. Like they could have been Good through point. so many other things that they're like, look, this is how we get through it. We just block it out. We ignore it. We move on because like they don't want to be emotional. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not that they're not emotional. It's that they don't want to be emotional. And I think <laughs> like, that's something that a lot of the times, like, I think is coming up more and more. Like, it's like, we don't want to feel those things because we don't want to, you know, feel hurt. We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to, you know, express our emotions. So we just kind of like, it seems sometimes like we just have a, like an easier way coping with it or, you know, like, Oh, like how, how are they like, you know, able to push through this or get through it and not be all, you know, broken down. And it's like, are you really walking through your emotions or, or are you just blocking it out so that you can move on to the next thing? So, you know, I, I think it's like, it's, it's a defense mechanism sometimes that like we I have agree. built up in our life. And I think, you know, like when you say that, like there are a couple people that like come to mind for me too. And they're like, nope, like this is, you know, what we do. And we just like move on. And I think I used to be like that. I used to kind of just be like, it is what it is, you know, not suck it up, but like almost, yeah, like suck it up. Come on. Like, are we still hung up on this? Like, let's go. And what I've found though, is just like, it's so much more, I think, meaningful when we take time to look back and say like what feelings we were actually having. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot to unpack, Mm -hmm. but I think like it's sort of like part of the experience of life. Like if we're not taking the time to express all of our feelings and all of our emotions, like we don't always have to be happy. Like, and we shouldn't like always be sad, but like, you know, like having that array of emotions, I think is a gift. I think there's a lot there that, you know, like it's like sometimes we think that people are just kind of like brushing it over or they're a lot better at getting Mm -hmm. through something. Like if it happened to them, like how are they so calm and collective and they could um, be internalizing it or, or not letting themselves fully express their emotions, which is something that I think society has sort of conditioned us to do. I 100% agree. And even we touched a little bit on partner trauma. And just about a week or so ago, my husband was having a really hard day. And I think it was 
And it was actually, we were having car problems, like something that seems minuscule in the grand scheme of life, but that was kind of what pushed him over the edge, so to speak, to have like a really, really hard day. And like, that's the first time in three years that he's like, just kind of had that hard day, so to speak. And he is amazing in his ability to support our family. I mean, he's working four jobs right now to support my recovery. Like it's mind boggling how hard he's working and how he cares for our family and doing all of these different things. But I think, and and I have been guilty of it. I think too often we forget like those strong people need a person to lean on as well. And, you know, when he had that bad day, we had amazing friends step up, take our kids so he and I could spend some time together. And it was, it turned out fine. But had we not had those friends, like imagine how much harder it would have been to kind of reconnect, so to speak, and give him a break that he so desperately needed. And it's just, our society is so harsh on mental health and the way that that can impact new parents, especially having birth trauma or a birth plan, or I should say, and or a birth plan that didn't go the way that you were hoping. And yeah, I feel like we could talk about this all day. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's what, you know, you're emulating, like that's what you're creating with your podcast and really showing those stories of birth trauma and diving into, you know, like what's potentially like really going on sometimes on that side of, of birth stories. So, you know, what has that been like, like the evolution of your podcast and sharing your story and like sharing other people's stories. And, um, how about you just talk about your podcast for a little bit? Oh, thank you. Uh, so my podcast is called birth trauma stories and, you know, I feel like sometimes this question is a little sensitive to me because I feel like It's been such a privilege to share these stories and give these parents a place to share their stories. Because for me personally, talking about it is the way that I process trauma or process a bad day, et cetera. But on the other, being the person who is providing that space, I hate that I have to do that. I hate that it's more dangerous now to give birth than it was for our mothers. And, you know, there's the statistics, but Black women are three to four times more likely than their white counterparts to die from childbirth. And it's just, and, and just like the epidemic of postpartum mood disorders and the fact of, again, it doesn't always just target the mother. It can target the father as well. It makes my heart hurt that I have to have this space, but again, it's been such a privilege and I feel so incredibly honored that these people trust me with their stories. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love what you're doing and I love, you know, the message of it all. And I think it's so important to be having these conversations and really talking about it and just continuing Mm -hmm. to talk about it, because I think it is a very useful tool to be able to uncover, you know, sides of it that are more than just, you know, what research or, you know, the medical community can do, like they're not Mm -hmm. able to have these deep conversations and dive into the lives of their patients. A lot of the times, like they don't have that 
communication aspect built up and it's just, there's no time for it in, in the medical system. So I think to be, you know, be able to like shed light on that and give that perspective really has the ability to help other people understand, you know, a a little bit of what it's like to, to go through these experiences. And I think just even like that little, little bit helps. I agree. And I think especially for postpartum, even more so after having an unplanned C-section or a planned C-section, let's be honest, you can have a mood disorder for a number of reasons. But even, you know, waking up from my birth trauma, it was incredibly confusing. And I didn't realize that I had birth trauma with my first until I had my second. And I started learning more about what birth trauma is. And that was kind of eye-opening. But then our postpartum care providers, whether that's your PCP, your OB, whoever, needs to be doing a better job of screening for mental health disorders. I mean, I remember filling out the checklist with my first. I actually didn't fill it out with my second, ironically, which you would think that having basically, I mean, I coded six times. So lost my life six times. I gained it that last time, counted. But, you know, like you'd think that someone would have sat me down and said like, hey, you might develop PTSD. You might develop another postpartum mood disorder. And I still, even two weeks ago, I had a small procedure and my incision reopened. And that triggered my PTSD because my C-section scar opened after my second. These mood disorders are not always a one and done. Like as different things come up in your life, they unfortunately can come back. But I think it's so important to have a support system, you know, and they say it takes a village, but in the 21st century, our villages aren't always around. And it makes me really sad that we don't have that. And, you know, I started... It's called the Trauma Tribe. We meet every second Tuesday of the month. It's a just a support group for birth trauma survivors. And I recently had someone from Brazil reach out to me, which wow. was, A, mind-blowing. Like, how cool. But again, like, how sad. And she, like, even said in her form, she didn't have, she could not find a support group in her country. And I'm just like, my mind is blown that, now granted, like you said earlier, Postpartum depression was only diagnosed less than 30 years ago, but okay, it's been 30 years now. Why are we not offering these support groups more regularly? Whether yeah, that's- Or why are they not as easily accessible? Like they might yes. be there, but it's like you have to search for it. So why aren't the providers or the people that are directly connected to the people that have gone through these experiences giving them that material? Like why, why is it maybe like a pamphlet on a counter somewhere off in the distance that like you have to like look through or it's like, you know, at a local place, but like you've never heard of it. So like, unless you randomly see something come up on Facebook or randomly hear a friend talk about it or, you know, somehow Google search something in order to find it. Mm hmm. Like, how is that how our system is structured? That's what I think that's what blows my mind. Like you said, like you, your provider knew exactly what you had just gone through. Why was there never a conversation of like, hey, you went through a lot. 
Do you have a therapist lined up? If not, like, let's try to find somebody. Like, how is that like out of their scope too much to be able to fully care for their patient? That's a great question. And granted, my memory from that time is not the best. So may I do want to add the caveat, maybe he did do that. And I just don't remember, but I doubt it. (laughs) And the follow up, just like make sure, you know, like it's just like, it's like, it seems like a little step. And I know like, you know, like some providers could have a a lot of patients and they're very busy, but like that needs to be some sort of branch associated with like your practice that like you're following up with these people that have potentially been through a very traumatic experience. Or like the social worker who I had a social worker assigned to my case. Why did they not Mm. offer resources after what happened. And, and it's just, it's just mind boggling that I read in my record once that the cardiologist who saw me on the regular floor, the step down unit that in my record, like we explained to the husband, it's going to take at least two weeks. She cannot be a stay-at-home mom, except because I was a stay-at-home mom with my first, like, et cetera. And I laugh at that now because here we are now, next month will be three and a half years. And it's just mind boggling that they thought it was going to take me two weeks to heal from severe birth trauma. And here we are three and a half years later, and I'm still doing extensive PT, still doing OT, speech at home, like my own. I'm no longer in like, I did graduate, but I do, I still do things at home, but it's just mind boggling that I think too often doctors look through the lens of, okay, cardiac related, she's okay to go back to being a stay-at-home mom in two weeks. But what about physically? Like I had so much deconditioning from laying in a bed for a month. Uh, What about neurologically? What about emotionally? You know, like there needs to be more holistic care overall in our society and in the medical system. It's just- it's just sad. And I just hope that with cesarean awareness month, that these cesarean mamas know that they are not alone. You're here for them. I'm here for them. And there's several other podcasters who are trying to support the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously like we could like venture off and talk about so many topics and really like dive deep on so much Mm -hmm. of this, but like we can only capture so much in an episode. So is there anything that you would want to add like on a final note, like maybe cesarean related or, you know, just speaking to a new mom um, who's going through something or maybe, you know, just emulating like a little portion of your experience that you would want to wrap up everything and kind of say? Probably about delayed bonding. I didn't bond with my second. With my first, it was immediate. And so I was over the moon immediate, even given all the birth trauma I experienced. But with my second, it took nine months. And again, I had several re-hospitalizations that first year. Not only was I healing physically, you know, I was in and out of the hospital trying to just make it to my therapy appointments, do my, I call it my work, so to speak, day to day. And I didn't realize until about, I think it was about three or four months, I'd spoken with a fellow AFE survivor and she too said, I experienced delayed bonding as well. And then I was like, oh, 
okay. Because at first I was like, what is wrong with me? I'm not bonding with my baby. And like looking back, I didn't come home for an entire month. I didn't meet her until she was over two weeks old. I had in those first nine months, I think three hospitalizations. So I was away from her a lot. And even during the day I was sleeping after a brain injury, you sleep a lot. And I was sleeping so much that she was going to trusted friends uh, houses so they could properly care for her because I was hardly even strong enough to pick her up. It was mm. it it was hard. And so I just want to give you hope that delayed bonding happens and it doesn't make you a bad mom. And uh, in the meantime, again, there's support out there for you. It might take a little digging, but please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm always happy to support a mom who's in the thick of it. I love it. So where can we get in contact with you? How can we reach you? And um, where are you hanging out mostly? I mostly hang out on Instagram. Uh, so our handle on Instagram is birth trauma stories. And we do have a website as well, www.birthtraumastories.com. And my email is kathy at birthtraumastories.com. I love it. Well, thank you so much for chatting today and really just having like, I, I love these conversations. Like I honestly love doing this because I think like I learn something new every time and mm -hmm. I just feel like it's such powerful work that like we're making that effort to share stories and highlight portions of things that aren't commonly talked about. So thank you. I could say the same about you. You're doing the work too. And I think, I think, like I said earlier, we're more powerful in numbers. So thank you again for not only giving me the opportunity to share my cesarean awareness story, but thank you for having this space and doing the work as well. Thank you, mamas, so much for listening. Remember, you are a rock star. I believe in you. Let's doula this. Let's crank it up a notch and let's kick it into high gear together. Hit that subscribe button. Share this episode with a friend. Message me, email me, call me, beat me. You know how to reach me. We're doing this, mamas. I am so excited to catch you here next week. This is your one-stop go-to place for helping you find the resources you need to make the best choices for you and your family during pregnancy, birth, and most importantly, postpartum. See you later, mamas.